Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. And we're asking the question, what does it look like for us as individuals? What does it look like for us as a church to flourish, to thrive, to really uh, grow and live that abundant life that we just talked about this morning with Elida? What's it mean not just to make it through life, but to really, really thrive. And so as we, as we go through this series, what we've been looking at is the Beatitudes, this group of statements that starts out the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, his uh, biggest collection of teachings in one setting that, Jesus, uh, that was recorded by Jesus. And he starts out with these Beatitudes, the blessed are, or blessed are. And he goes through uh, these different characteristics of people who are living a blessed life. Now, we've talked about this, and we said often this word blessed gets kind of translated in our culture as the good things that happen to you because of the good things you do, right? So if you're good, good will happen. It almost feels a little bit like karma, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not saying, I'm giving you a list of rules to live up to, and if you do these things, then God will bless you. He's saying, I'm giving you a picture of the good life. It's very different than what the world might prescribe, but I'm giving you a picture of what it looks like for somebody who's thriving, what what a picture of someone living who is flourishing. It's not something to live up to. It's something to live into. So as he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's something that we would not say, blessed are the poor, you know, like happy are the poor or flourishing are the poor, thriving are the poor. We wouldn't expect to see that. But he says, I want you to see something here. When you realize that you don't have anything in you and that you desperately need God and that God is right there, that's a life of thriving. When you give up trying or having to do it all on your own, you recognize your emptiness and the God who is waiting to fill you. That is a picture of a flourishing life. And he goes through these things Um, these statements like blessed are the poor or flourishing are the poor. Flourishing are the meek. The meek aren't the weak. The meek are the powerful combined with the humble for the benefit of others. The meek are people who use their power humbly for the benefit of others. And he says when you live like this, that is a flourishing life. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the, the merciful, not just in what you do, like you should, you should be merciful, but people who are full of mercy. When you're full of mercy, it's much easier to give it, something that you've already received. Jesus, Jesus says, this is a picture of what it looks like to thrive. And so I want to read the entire list of the Beatitudes this morning together, these 12 verses that kick off the Sermon on the Mount. And then we're going to focus in on Matthew 5, 8 uh, this morning. And as we do this, uh, we don't always do this, but I want to try it this morning. I'd like you to stand with me as we read the Beatitudes coming out of Matthew 5. Um, Go ahead and stand up. We're going to throw these verses up on uh, the screen, and I'll read them. I want to put them in front of us and then focus in on the one for today. Matthew 5.1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples 
came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us. Would you give us ears to hear you this morning as we look at what it looks like to thrive, what it looks like to flourish, to really, really grow and be healthy. Open our ears, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Matthew 5.8, if we focus in on this one, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart, he says, flourishing our the pure in heart. This one actually makes sense. Some of the other ones, blessed are the poor in spirit, are like, I don't know that I get that right away. Blessed are those who hunger. Uh, Some of those are like world uh, flippers. This one seems to make sense. Yeah, blessed are the pure in heart. I get that. That would be a flourishing light to be be pure from my, the deepest part of who I am. This one sounds good. Like, this is the one that I want. It's much better than Uh, on the surface than the previous ones, maybe. I like this one. The problem is, this one just doesn't sound like me. And I know some of you, it doesn't sound like you either. (laughs) I want to talk about the meaning of pure. What Jesus is getting at when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. I want to talk about the meaning. I want to dip back into the Old Testament to talk about what does it look like Uh, What did purity look like in the Old Testament? Is there something that God is saying to us through the pages of Scripture? What did it look like in the Old Testament? What is Jesus bringing now? What is he saying now? And how do we respond to that? What kind of life is he inviting us into, and what does that look like? So the meaning of pure had three different different, uh, kinds of definitions. The first one would be simply, pure meant clean. Clean, like as in not dirty. And you could picture clothes. Pure clothes were clothes that weren't all muddied up, weren't stained. To be unclean uh, was to be unfit to meet with God. And so to be clean is to say you can, you can stand in God's presence. You are ready to engage with God. Clean, not stained, not soiled. The second uh, meaning or definition would be purged of anything less than ideal. And this would have uh, kind of a picture of like wheat separated from the chaff. If you uh, harvest wheat, you know that it's in, uh, it's wrapped up in all this stuff that's not useful, not edible, and you have to take great care to separate the wheat out and the edible part and leave the other stuff, burn the other stuff behind. Right? In Senegal, you can hear the pounding of millet. It's a, a wheat-like plant 
Um, you can hear pounding of that as they separate the millet from the outer husk. And as you do that, you're purging and you're separating it. Another picture of this purging would be an army that is purged of all cowardly, unwilling, inefficient soldiers. And now it's a force to be reckoned with. An undiluted, first-class group of fighters purged of anything less than ideal. So to be clean, or to be pure is to be clean. To be clean is to be purged of anything that would uh, be less than ideal. And then the third one is undiluted. Give you a picture of something diluted that uh, hopefully should give you a bad reaction. If you ask me for a glass of milk and I pour you a glass uh, a third of the way full and then I fill it the rest of the way with water, do you feel like you just got not a gift, right? That is not milk. That's white water you just gave me, right? That's been diluted. Or wine. If you came over uh, to dinner and we poured you a glass of wine and we're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I fill the rest of the glass up with water. You're like, what is the point of that? that is, that's no longer good for anything, right? So this idea of being diluted, of saying there's good in here, but there's so much other stuff that's just making it impotent and powerless that that's no longer pure. I would like a pure glass of milk or I'd like a pure glass of wine or give me nothing. I'll just drink water. Thank you. So to be pure is to be clean, to be purged, to be uh, undiluted. And this shows up all through the Old Testament. Purity was a huge theme and issue in the Old Testament. Examples of the unclean, like all kinds of the muck of life would splash up on you. When you, talk, when you think about your own life of being soiled and dirty, of being diluted with all kinds of different distractions of the things that jump up of the things that are less than ideal in your life. You can name them pretty quick, I would think. I sure can for me. And in the Old Testament, that was true as well. The muck of life, of life splashed up and got all over you. Sin had its way of running through people and through the community so that they over and over and over forgot who they were. And Jesus took it a step further. When he moved, when he arrived on the scene, he said, you've heard it said like, don't murder. I'll tell you, if you're angry with someone, you've as good as murdered them. You've heard it said, Jesus said, don't commit adultery. I'll tell you, if you look at a man or woman with lust in your heart, it's the same thing going on. So Jesus says, this is not just about the external actions. This is about what's going on in your heart. People in the Old Testament knew they needed to do something with the muck of life that was making them unclean and impure. What did you do with that? They had something uh, called the Day of Atonement, this gift that God gave annually. Now, daily, priests would make sacrifices for the people of guilt offerings and thanks offerings, uh, all kinds of offerings that they were continually offering. But one day a year, this Day of Atonement, the high priest would gather all of the people together, and all at once they would cry out and they would mourn for the impurity in their life. The high priest would bring everybody together and he would bring either two sheep or two goats. It didn't really matter. He'd bring them up in front of the people and one of the sheep or goats was sacrificed and the other became known as the scapegoat. And what happened with this one was, it's really intense. 
the high priest would take his hands and he would place his hands on this scapegoat. And this was a symbolic act of all of the sin and all of the impurity of the community being moved onto the head of the goat. All of the sin of the community gets placed now on this sheep, the scapegoat here. And then they didn't kill it. What they did was they led that goat out of the community. They didn't even have somebody in the community. They'd go get a Gentile, a foreigner, somebody that wasn't part of the, the nation to lead the goat out of the community and into the desert somewhere. Now, you, you had a real bad feeling if later on that day you saw that goat walking down the street, right? That is a heavy loaded goat. All the sins of the community are on this goat's shoulders and then he's led out of the community. And as the goat is led out of the community, where is the sin going? Out of the community. You know why this was a huge celebration, right? Your sin is passed onto the scapegoat, which is where we get that term, and leaves the building. It leaves the room. It leaves the community. Huge celebration. And then the people would celebrate until sin came back into the picture, right? And so year after year after year after year, they would celebrate this day of atonement, and then year after year after year after year, they'd get impure again and have it all build up again. Was it a gift? Yeah, absolutely. Was it ever really finished? No. Hebrews 10, 11 says, day after day, the priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So this is a symbolic action and it's a, a gift of God, but it can't ever really finish the job. This is tiring. I keep messing up. God had made a covenant with them and they kept failing to live into their end of the bargain. And so God starts saying something different. In Jeremiah 31, 33, he starts talking about a new covenant. And he says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be, my God, I will be their God, and they will be my people. The first covenant was given, and it was a gift. Let's do this together. You give yourself to me, I will give your, myself to you, God says, to the nation. As he raises up, calls out Abraham, and says, you'll be the father of a great nation. He says, you do your part, I'll do my part. But they could never do their part. They just kept failing and falling over and over and over and over. And if you feel like that, you're in good company. And God says, God knew this all the way around, right? It's not, it's not surprising to him. God says, I've shown you what it takes and that you don't have what it takes. And that's not, to, that's not to just make fun of you or to be hard on you. I'm showing you what purity requires. And now I'm going to fulfill it myself. Because you know that you can't. Now I'm going to do it. And he says in Jeremiah here, I'm going to make a new covenant. I will write it on their hearts. As if to say, you won't be able to help uh, succeeding. 
you won't be able to fail. I'm going to do it for you. Ezekiel 11.19 says, I will give them one heart. If you ever walk around and you feel like you've got a divided heart, Paul wrestled with this. I wrestle with this a lot. If you uh, wrestle with feeling like your heart is pulled in different directions, God says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. God is calling dead people to life. In Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit or a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And then Jesus shows up and he sums up the entire Old Testament. People are saying, what's, what's the most important command if we could like sum it up into one thing? Jesus responds and he says, well, there's two. I'm not going to just label it as one. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, that's another way of saying the entire Old Testament, hang on these two commandments. Some have actually said that this, which has been called the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is a definition of what it means to be pure in heart. Can you do this? No, you can't do this. You can try real hard, but you, I, I have not succeeded on my own in loving God with everything that I have. Does that make me less dedicated or half-hearted and not whole-hearted? Probably sometimes. I don't want to get beat up there, and I don't want you to get beat up there, but it's Jesus is laying out something that is actually impossible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can do that, you know, on my best days some of the time. On my worst days, I don't, I don't think about it at all. But Jesus is doing something here that God had spoken into a long time ago when he said, I'm going to write this new way on your heart. I'm going to do something that you won't even be able to fail. Not if you try harder, if you effort a whole lot, you can earn this. You can hold up your end of the bargain. I'm going to do something. And here's where it gets amazing. Now, you remember the Day of Atonement, right? The priest puts his hands on the head of this scapegoat, and all of the sins are transferred onto the scapegoat and then is led out of the community. I want you to keep that in mind as we turn to John 19. Jesus is standing before Pilate, and the community is actually calling Jesus guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. He's asked, he says, I'll give you either Jesus or Barabbas. Which one do you want released? And they say, Barabbas. And he sends Jesus off to get beaten, and he comes back, and Pilate holds Jesus up in front of the crowd again. He says, I'm baffled. I don't see any guilt on this man but you keep screaming guilty. Do you see the picture connected to the Old Testament? There's no guilt on him, and yet you're screaming guilt on him. And Pilate says, what do you want me to do? And in John 19, 15, you know that John has this in mind. It says, they shouted, take him away. Take him away. 
You get the scapegoat picture, right? The sins are being transferred, and he's being taken out of the community. And they yell, crucify him, take him away. And Jesus is led out by a Gentile, not a part of the community. He's led out, up a hill, out of the community, and he's crucified. And all of our guilt is put on him. And Jesus becomes, in that moment, our sacrifice and our scapegoat. And all of our sin is placed on him. And three days later, when he rises from the dead, he gives us something back. He said, I just defeated death. Your sin is on my shoulders, and I broke it. And I give you life that you could have never had, that you could have never earned, that you could have never accomplished. I give you life. What Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, comes to be true if you follow Jesus. He has already given you a pure heart. If you follow Jesus, he has already switched places with you and a pure heart that you could never accomplish on your own has already been established within you. You may not feel like it, but it's true. Something happens when you give your life to Jesus is he takes out the heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. He takes out the soil and the impurity and he separates you and he puts in a living and pure and beating heart. And I'll tell you, you'll spend the the rest of your life catching up with the work that he's already done, right? The new heart that is within starts to spread through the rest of your life. I've had arguments with other uh, pastors and friends about this, saying we're constantly having our hearts renewed, and he's constantly making our hearts new. It's not there yet. And I'd say, I get it. I get what you're saying. I don't think we're done, but we are done. Like, the heart is made new at the moment we receive what Jesus has for us. At the moment we give our life to him, we trade places, and we get something. And now we continue on. We continue to work. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, said the law, the Old Testament, what was going on with the Day of Atonement and all of that, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And skip forward to Hebrews 10 verse 11. Day after day, priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. But when this priest, this is Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And it goes on in verse 15. 
the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. Going back to the Old Testament when God said, I will do this. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sin and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So what Hebrews is saying is the Old Testament that was set up meant to show us what Jesus would accomplish. The Old Testament that was set up and the practice that were set up was just is a shadow of what was to come. And God said, I will do something. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish that. I didn't come to throw the Old Testament away. I want you to pay attention to it. All of that stands. It's just that I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do it for you. I will fulfill everything about this for you. Jesus did what you could never do. Jesus covers your sin. Jesus takes away your sin. You are forgiven. And Hebrews says, there's no longer any need for sacrifice. So you don't have to go through life beating yourself up for the sin in your life because Jesus already paid for it. If you identify sin, it's a gift that God is showing you to say, let me continue to wash that away. We want to continue to let that fall off. But you don't have to beat yourself up in condemnation or in shame because Jesus already took it. Hebrews 10, 14, for this reason, is one of my favorite verses. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus fulfills the covenant that we never could so that we can live in the kingdom that we could never create. What this means is that if you're in Christ, if you've received him, your guilt is gone. Your shame is gone. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, flourishing are the pure in heart, now he's actually talking about you. He's not happening about what could be you. He's actually talking about you. Not because of what you did, but because of what he did. And there's an already not yet component to this, right? This is not to say we're walking around and we don't get messed up in sin. We don't get the muck of life on us. We still make mistakes. We still do stupid things. We still get wrapped up in all of that. Hebrews 12 says, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. But now it's this outside force seeking to entangle us. It's not coming from the heart that God put within, right? We still have work to do, but it's a co-laboring with God, not to earn something, but because of a truth that is growing inside of us, right? 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So Paul is saying, we still have work to do. It's just not the work of measuring up. It's not the work of living up to something so that God is pleased. Because he's pleased, we cooperate. We co-labor. Let's cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit. And Philippians 1, 6, 
It says, we continue to walk out this hope. It says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Has he given you a pure heart if you're in Christ? Yes, it's already happened. Is there still work to be done in cleansing yourself? Yes, there is, right? We still work alongside God in what he continues to do in our life. So flourishing are the poor or the pure in heart. That's the first part. And then it says, for they will see God. Now, I think a couple of different things are going on here. I think there's a future reality that Jesus is pointing to, and there's also a present reality that we're invited into. The future reality shows up in Revelation 22. In the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, when it's looking to when God makes all things new, he restores all things, and he completely purges any evil and destruction, but he's restoring all things. In that time, it says, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. It's looking forward to a future where we look God in the face and we see him in his glory. Where in the Old Testament, he told Moses, I'm going to pass by you and I'm going to just let you see the the vapor trails of me because you couldn't take me in. One day, he said, you will look me in the face. You will see me. And we look forward to that day. In Christ, we look forward to the day we stand before God and we see him face to face. The curse of the past will be a long gone thing and life will be all there is. It is coming. This is a future reality. But I also believe that there's a present reality. Flourishing are the pure in heart for they will see God. I think that happens today. I think that happens in the here and now. Jesus said in John 14, 6 and 7, says Jesus said to him, when people are asking, which way do we go? How do we follow you? Which uh, path do you want us to go down? And he says, don't worry about the path, worry about me. He says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he presses in a little bit. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus says, if you've seen me and who I really am, you have already seen the father. To see Jesus is to see God. So to say, flourishing are the pure in heart for they will see God. That's already happening. If you have seen in your heart who Jesus really is, you've already seen God. You are already seeing him. And I pray you see him more and more and more and more clearly every day. And I pray that for me, for all of us. And one day fully. But we do see him now. You look at the people in the Bible whose lives were changed when they really saw Jesus. You look at Saul in the New Testament who had his name changed to Paul, who was an enemy of God. And Jesus 
slammed him on his back and said, why are you doing this? And the scales on his eyes, like they fell off. And he was blinded, but he said, for the first time in my life, I can truly see. He saw Jesus. An enemy of Jesus saw Jesus, and it changed him. You look at the, the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, and he's seeking God. He's studying Scripture, and he gets questions answered, and he doesn't just attain knowledge. He starts to see Jesus, like his mind and his heart are open, and he sees for the first time, and he says, what do I do with this? What do I, what do, I do with it? I saw Jesus. What do I do? And Philip says, uh, get baptized. That's what you do. Like, tell people. He's like, there's some water. Can I do it? Jump in the puddle, man. Go do it. Get baptized right now. Let's do it. This enemy, Paul, is changed and a seeker.